episode of Common Mystics, we are transported by spirit through place and time to Texas in 1955 to tell the tale of a brutal triple homicide. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story begins in Ridgeway, South Carolina. Jen, this story really hit me hard. It's brutal. It is. So let's get right into it so we can tell the listeners what in the actual F was happening, because there's a lot going on here. There was. Explain, Jill, where we were when we happened upon this story. As you folks know from our previous episode, we were traveling south from North Carolina. So we just passed Charlotte and we were headed to Savannah, Georgia. And as we were driving through the state of South Carolina, we decided to stop and check out the little town of Blythewood. And as we were poking around Blythewood, South Carolina, we happened upon a historical society. Mm-hmm. It was super cute. My super gosh. cute. It was a house structure. It looked like a house. And in the back, there are all of these old historic structures. Very cool. We see it. We're intrigued. We park and we're already walking around the grounds, right? We don't even go in the front door. We're in the back at this point. You're already getting impressions when we're walking around. Yeah. As we're outside, there are all these old historic structures and we're looking at them and one looks like an outhouse. In my mind's eye, I was seeing a scene from a movie. You know the movie Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood? I do. Yeah, it's an it's a Western. In one scene, there is an outlaw and he goes to an outhouse and he's in the outhouse and he's ambushed by a murderer and the murderer busts open the outhouse door and he's he's caught with his pants down, completely unprepared, undressed in the situation. And I kept seeing that scene in my head and I mm. felt like he was caught with his pants down, caught with his pants down. And that really stuck with me. So I felt like that was a hit or a breadcrumb. That is an absolutely incredible description. I love, I can just see Mm. it in my head. I was feeling when we were walking around, I was getting this feeling of generations, like families, a family generations living in this area, striving in this area. And it seemed like they're a very proud family. Mm. So as we're, as we're walking around, the, a, a lady had came out of the back door and we're like, oh, I, I hope this is okay. Right. We're like, is it okay for us to be looking around? And she said, oh, yes, of course. And yes, come on in. And if you have any questions, let me know. Feel free to look around all you like. So we did. And, and after a time, we, we walked in the back door. I know. We of- walked through the kitchen. <laughs> of the, the little historical building. And it was a wonderful little museum. And so we were enjoying that. And then we stopped and talked to the nice lady who worked there. The museum was so well done and it had so much information about the town and the people there. But I was it was really feeling to me when we were in that building that it was quaint. It was an ideal life. It was safe. And I was really enjoying it. I wanted to learn more. So she took a lot of time showing us around. She did. What do you remember her saying to us that stood out as significant to you that really stayed with you? Two things. She told us that we needed to go to Ridgeway, that it was right down the street for a few miles and that we would love it there. And that there were all of these quaint little shops. And she also said that 
we probably wouldn't be able to enjoy many of them because they were closed on Mondays. And the reason that that seems significant is because I could have sworn it was Tuesday, but mm. I didn't say anything, you know, because she was so nice and I didn't want to be contrary. And, you know, what do I know? We were on the road. I really didn't. I really wasn't sure what day it was, but she was telling us to go to Ridgeway, which is a cute little town, just a hop, skip and a jump from where we were. A notable place, a historic place, a lovely place, but it would be close to us because it was Monday. That's funny. So now yes. as she's having that conversation We see from out the front window that another person is approaching the historical society from the actual entrance door and not through the back door kitchen. Right. And she's the woman says to us, you know, this woman volunteers here. She knows so much about the area that you guys should get out because she's going to have your ear for quite a while. (laughs) So we kind of giggled. And this second lady had walked in and again, very hospitable, kind, introduced herself. And the first woman says to the second woman, don't you think these ladies will enjoy Ridgeway? And the second woman says, absolutely. But you know what? I'm not sure what's open today because today's Monday and a lot of the cute little shops may not be open like Laura's Tea Room. So again... That was notable because I thought today was Tuesday. Well, I think at that point we were both kind of convinced, okay, it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. if we, we must have been wrong. You know, what do we know? We're not working. We're on the road. Who the hell knows what day it is? I know. It's like an insight into retirement. Like, <laughs> hell if I know what day. And you know what? What Who does cares? it matter? Right. We thank them for their time. We head out. We went back through the kitchen to the parking lot and we get in the car. And what do you do? The first thing I do is I check my phone to see what day it is. And sure enough, it was Tuesday, not Monday, like they both told us, independent of each other, that it was. That was the start for me. I felt like things were just kind of starting to separate. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Like what I thought I should be experiencing <laughs> was different than was actually being experienced. And this was the start of that kind of divide. I agree. And I'll also say that I thought, oh, how wonderful, because now we'll be able to enjoy all of those things that they said we probably wouldn't be able to because it was closed on Monday. Right. Right. Absolutely. So now we'll be able to go to the tea room. We'll be able to go to all the little shops. Another notable thing for me, listeners, you know that I can be kind of a stickler with driving in my timeline. We were headed in the opposite direction. To get back to Ridgeway, we would have to backtrack north. And instead of being annoyed by it, I was really intrigued and I wanted to check out the town. Well, Jill, the other thing, and we talked about this that day in the car, is that we had a funny feeling about the first lady, the first lady who interacted with us. We kind of felt like she, (laughs) this is going to sound so strange, she was almost a guide to us in a sense, like some of those fantasy games. Oh, like the Legend of Zelda? There you go. You come up to a person who happens to be a guide and that person tells you exactly what you need to know at that point in time to get to the next phase of your journey. And that's what she felt like. And I remember saying that to you in the car and you were like, yes, I had the same feeling. It was the way she looked at us. It was the way she didn't ask too many questions about what we were doing or what we were up to. And she gave us just enough information to set us on our way. 
All right. So we get in the car. We go to Ridgeway. So we're at Ridgeway. We pull up into town. We pull like right like we get through the town limits and we pull over just like right there on the main street and we get out of the car and immediately I'm feeling this is a cute little town. Still, I'm feeling off. I'm feeling like this is a dream. Like mm-hmm. it just had this this unrealistic quality to it. I just can't explain it. It was almost like there was a veil. Yes. Like we were walking through mist. You yes. know, like we were just outside just on the other side of something else. I pulled out my phone and I'm looking at these two structures on the main street to my right. And I'm I'm like, there's so much energy. They were like reverberating energy. They were just like pulsating and they they got my attention. And I, I don't know what buildings they were, but they were right next to each other. And I um, am snapping pictures and I'm like, oh, I know something is calling out to me from these buildings. Okay. We do the whole classic mess around in the tea room. You know, we take pictures in ridiculous hats. It was so adorable. If you go to Ridgeway, please go to the tea room. It's so cute. And then we find the little antique shop. Things just get weirder and weirder. So you know how antique shops are. There are different booths. It's compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. And what you folks don't necessarily know is that when Jen and I are out getting our Spideys on, we separate, right? Mm -hmm. We do not stay together. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people are like, oh, I want to be with you guys when you guys discover these things. But what you don't know is that it's really not fun. Like I go my way, Jen goes her way, and then we report back to each other. Right. And that's really because we want to experience our own experiences and then come back and see if the other validates. So that's very intentional that w- that we work that way. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I am in the store and Jen is further back, booths down from me. And right away, I notice that Elvis is playing over the loudspeaker in the shop. Mm-hmm. And again, notable because it's Elvis. You guys know how we feel about Elvis at this point, right? We love Elvis. Mom loved Elvis. We were raised by Elvis. He's our daddy. Yeah, really? <laughs> we feel like he's our dad. Go ahead. So we're in the store and all of a sudden I'm really aware of Elvis playing on the loudspeaker. But it's not like a Bose loudspeaker. It's not clear. It's coming through as if it's on a turntable, as if it is a record of Elvis playing. And it has all that familiar kind of skips in a subtle way and the crackling of the vinyl. And I'm just really aware not only of the song, but of that kind of textured sound coming through. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm at a booth near the front of the store and I go to pick up a figurine and I want to say it was like of a creepy clown. And as I reach for it, I feel like there is some kind of invisible force making it more difficult for me to move in this space. It feels like Almost as if I am in an oxygen deprivation booth. Like I feel like I've seen it in movies where when there's a lack of oxygen, simple tacks seem harder. And that's what I was experiencing. And as I have this this figurine in my hand and I'm looking at it, my awareness of the music and the crackle is coming back to me and Elvis. And it feels like I can just 
lean into it, if I can just fine tune it, I would be transported somewhere. Like I felt like it was almost a A portal, a portal using that space and that music to get me somewhere. And it felt very inviting because it was Elvis. Mm. And so that freaked me out. I literally needed an adult. I needed to find Jennifer. I did not trust what was happening. And so I put the figurine down and I looked for Jennifer. As soon as I approached Jennifer, she was turning around when I got to her and I said, Jen, I feel like I'm in a time warp. What were you experiencing? I was turning around to find you because I was feeling the exact same way completely independent of you. I was feeling unsteady on my feet. I was feeling a little lightheaded. And I didn't touch anything unlike you because I wasn't sure that I would be able to not drop anything or not damage anything because it felt so odd. Also, I would say that I heard everything that you were hearing, but I would also describe the music as playing just a little bit too slowly And also, it sounded like it was coming at me through a tube or tunnel, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I totally felt like something was happening. Again, it felt time warpy, like something was just on the other side, and it was scary, which is why I was turning around to find you when you were (laughs) leaning over me, alarmed. Well, and I just want to say this, that this is not usually my vibe. Like I am not portal person. Like I'm just not that person. I respect all of you that may have had those experiences, but I'm kind of a skeptic too. And if I don't go through something that it's hard to believe, it really is hard to believe that such things can happen. But nevertheless, here we were cradling each other in an antique (laughs) store in South Carolina, freaked out because we were being transported. Well, Jill, I'll say two things. One, if someone else told me this story, I would not believe them. And also, if you weren't there to validate what I was feeling, I wouldn't believe myself and my own experience. That's interesting. You know what I'm saying? I would just be like, oh, you just needed to eat. You had some low blood sugar. You know what I'm saying? Jennifer faints all the time if she doesn't eat. (laughs) I, I wouldn't believe it myself if you weren't there to validate and were feeling it independent of me. So... That is major. And we are not those people. We are not those people. So the next thing that happens is other patrons, other people, customers of the antique store come to the room. And I mean, we must have looked bad. Ridiculous. I mean, honestly. But that kind of leveled us out a little bit. Like we need, we at least had the wherewithal to stop hugging each other and just be like, we're cool. We're fine. That's fine. Right. It kind of grounded us. That energy kind of grounded us in the moment. And we're like, okay. But not a hundred percent. Like I still felt the weirdness. Like there was still something happening. Right. So we leave the store. We went to the pizza place first and we're eating in this little diner. Mm hmm. And still not right. It felt like I was on drugs. It just did not feel like I was moving through the same space that I was seeing myself in, if that makes sense. Yes. It was like I was just off of what was happening around me. Yes, agreed. As I was sitting there in the pizza place, I was imagining or seeing in my mind's eye another scene from the 1950s with a girl in a poodle skirt. Do you know what I mean? I, I do. was sensing an entire different scene. It was very bizarre. Truly. Like it was happening on the other side of a gauze curtain. Mm, I love that. We eat pizza. Great pizza, by the way. Thin crust. 
loved. And mm-hmm. then we had we were leaving town, but before we leave, we we saw this beautiful, amazing old chapel. So of course we pull up there, and guess what? There's a cemetery around the chapel. Yeah, a little graveyard. It was called the Rough Chapel. It was mm. it's incredibly haunted, and again, it was one of those structures that were just pulsating out at us. Like we yes. loved it there. We knew that there was energy there. We knew we were supposed to be there, and that this was a breadcrumb for sure. The other thing that I remember feeling and saying to you was that even though it was a little run down, there was so much pride emanating from it. I love that. Yes, I do remember that. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. still you ate and still you were feeling like something was wrong. So it wasn't just low blood sugar. So that's Ridgeway. Tell us a little bit about it. According to the South Carolina Picture Project, Scots Irish settlers arrived in Ridgeway in the late 1700s. And the town was formally established when a railroad was completed that ran through from Columbia to Winsboro. And the railroad was built on a ridge. And that's where the town gets its name. Hmm, Makes sense. Yeah. So it was a little railroad town. That's cute. And of course, the railroad further increased the population and prosperity of Ridgeway. And more and more businesses began to pop up in the town. Okay. One notable businessman was David Ruff. Remember, you mentioned the Ruff Chapel where we were. Tell me about him. Well, David Ruff was Ridgeway's very first merchant. Mm. He opened a general store in 1840, and it's still there on Palmer Street. That's the street we were on. Ah, it's the town's main thoroughfare. Ridgeway's first Methodist church was known as Ruff's Chapel. That's the chapel we were at. And it was established by merchant David Ruff in 1873. He just has all kinds of money. Well, you know what? The Ruff name can be found all over town even today. Okay. Yeah. And so even even though the buildings don't bear that name, there are connections to the Ruff family through those buildings. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. The Ruff and Company building was built in 1901, and it's right next to the original Ruff store. And today the store is owned and operated by Dan Ruff. Oh, wow. Yeah, a sixth generation merchant of the Ridgeway family. Isn't that incredible? That is something. That really is cool. Right. So from our research, definitely the Ruff family is associated. Part of this story. In some yes. way, part of this story. Mm-hmm. You took over the research. I did. And it was a rabbit hole. I went through every rough I can think of. I couldn't find any shooting murders in Ridgeway during the 1950s that was in some way associated with the Ruff family. Ah. So I, when I was doing this research, and I mean, I was doing deep dives in geological papers, I kept hearing in my head from the movie Back to the Future, it's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done with your kids. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that brought in my search and I found a story that seemed to be coming out of the computer at me. But this is the weird thing. It's not in Ridgeway. Okay. And the rough name isn't associated with it. It's not. It's not. But it's our story. Okay. It's the story of the Dickinson murders. The Dickinson murders. Mm Mm-hmm. A family in Dickinson, Texas was murdered. Okay. 
So you're telling me that the Ruff family that helped establish Ridgeway, South Carolina, would be connected to a multiple homicide in Texas in the 1950s. That's absolutely right. In a completely different place and time. Absolutely right. So let's put on our tinfoil hats (laughs) (laughs) and explore this story. All right. So according to Lee Jones on GalvestonCrimeScene.com, during the early morning hours of June 22nd, 1955, Zola Norman, a grandmother in her 60s, was laying in bed beside her grandson, 12-year-old George. The pair were sharing a bed that night to accommodate an impromptu guest who was staying at the house. Interesting. The stranger was sleeping in George's room, which is why he was sleeping with his grandmother. Mm -hmm. Zola lived in the home of her daughter, Ruby, and her family. So Ruby's husband, John, and their eldest son, Jack, were both out of town working in Sulphur, Louisiana. Okay. And hours before, Ruby had driven to Sulphur, Louisiana for a short visit with them both. Mm -hmm. She probably missed them. I'm sure she did. And on her return home near the town of Beaumont, Texas, Ruby stopped to pick up an airman who had thumbed her down on the road. He had been hitchhiking, looking for a ride. Apparently, he had gone AWOL from a Georgia base, and he told Ruby this. But nevertheless, Ruby was always happy to help a young man in service because her own boy, Jack, was also in the service. That's really sweet. Mm -hmm. And so she saw this young man on the side of the road, obviously a serviceman who needed some help, and she decided to pick him up and help him. She was thinking if her boy needed help somewhere, she would want some mother to pick up Jack and help Jack out. Exactly. Ruby. I know. Don't you love Ruby? I do love Ruby. So she picked him up, and Jill, the first thing she did was feed him. Aw. And they stopped at a local cafe. She buys him beer, they have a drink, they share a meal. And during that time, you have to assume that he told her that he had no place to go and he had no place to sleep that night because Ruby ended up deciding to take him home to her house so that he could have a warm meal and a place to stay the night. What a woman. And so that that's what she did. She took him to her house. What did she tell her mother? And her son, like, who is this man? Can you imagine? Purportedly, she introduced him to her mother, Zola, and her son, George, as a friend of Jack's. Okay. So it's a friend of her oldest son, Jack. Which makes sense. She was just hit with Jack and John, her her husband and her son. Right. And then she comes home and she's like, oh, hey, this is a friend of Jack's. He's going to spend the night with us. Exactly. The young stranger accepted the invitation after dinner. Ruby and George set up this stranger in George's room for the night, and the whole bunch watched TV together. Mm. Ruby, her mother Zola, 12-year-old George, and the stranger, all together. Let me just paint a picture. So Ruby feeds this man, then comes home for dinner. They set him up in George's room. Everyone's watching TV. They Mm -hmm. clean up a little bit, and then they all go to bed. Really kind and generous. Absolutely. Now, there are notes from the Associated Press that reveal how the events unfolded, at least based on the serviceman's perception. Oh, this gets so bad. Okay. 
So he makes himself comfy in George's room. He takes off his shoes. He takes off his shirt. He's laying in bed and he just can't sleep. And then after a while, he grabs a gun and gets up. He goes into the hall and he stands between Ruby's room and the room he was sleeping in. And he notices that Zola's doors open a crack. Zola's the grandmother who's sleeping with George. He opens Zola's door wider and enters the room. And at that moment, she turns over in the bed, quickly turns on the light and says, who is it in the dim light of the room? And according to the stranger, he said that Zola glared at him with hate in her eyes. Well, sure. You're you just woke her up. You're in this woman's bedroom. Like, yeah, bet your ass. I would glare at you if you woke me up in the middle of the night for no good reason. He took three steps toward her raised his hand while looking Zola right in the eye and pulled the trigger. Oh, my God. Now, young George was sleeping on his stomach in the bed next to his grandmother. After mm. the shot rang out, George began to rise and yeah. get up from the bed. Oh but the killer God. turned the gun towards George and shot him dead, too. Twelve years old. And then the murderer walked out onto the porch and he describes standing in the night air, feeling as if he, quote, had conquered somebody. Mm. Then he pondered what he had done, coming to the conclusion that he didn't do anything wrong. He actually gave the Associated Press this like batshit crazy quote about like American society and how they value killing. It's just too bonkers to even get into. But go on. And then Lee Jones of GalvestonCrimeScene.com describes that he planned to knock Ruby unconscious and take her with him so that she could write checks along the way to fund his escape because he was looking for money. Right. And and Ruby had bought him beer and bought him dinner. So he looked at Ruby as someone who could continue to, to fund his exploits. Mm-hmm. So according to him, the blackjack that he intended to hit her with slipped from his hand as he swung at her head. And when she started to wake up, he shot her. He shot her instead. <sighs> and then he proceeded to rob the home of any money or valuables that he could find. And he took $20 out of Ruby's purse. He took her wedding ring off her finger and he rummaged through Zola's room, taking $3 and some change. Then he enjoyed a glass of milk, took out the trash, wiped down any surfaces he thought he might have touched before taking Ruby's 1953 red and cream Ford sedan and driving away. It would be three days before a neighbor, concerned by the lack of activity at the house, would stop over and check things out. And it was he who would find, peering through the windows, the lifeless bodies in bed. He called the police, and responders made the grisly discovery of 44-year-old Ruby, her 12-year-old son George, and her 63-year-old mother Zola, all murdered by the way of gunshots as they lay in bed. It's absolutely terrifying. It's chilling. Who was this guy? Who who did this? His name was Ellis Lawhon. And I don't know that I'm saying that right, but it's spelled L-A-U-H-O-N. Lawhon. Ellis Lawhon Jr. was 26 years old. There must have been like real signs that this guy was a monster because this is monstrous. Tell me about him. Ellis Lawhon was born in Detroit in 1929, but his family apparently moved around a lot. He was the eldest of two kids. He and his sister Patricia and his parents settled in Arkansas, where his father's family was from. 
And apparently, Jill, he lived a normal life. Stop it. He went to high school. He had a few college years before he went to join the Air Force. Okay, so perfectly normal. Then all of a sudden he can't go to sleep and he grabs a gun and kills three people. I don't understand. What's the explanation for this? Ellis reported to the Sweetwater Reporter on July 5th of 1955, which was 13 days after the murder, that he did see a therapist in 1950 before he entered the Air Force and that the therapist hinted that something was wrong with him. He said the therapist told him to come back, but he never did. And he joined the Air Force instead. He said that he believes he's mentally ill and a schizophrenic with multiple personalities. So he's just throwing any kind of extreme mental illness out there and like whatever sticks is what he's saying. He provided this explanation, obviously, after he was caught. This was 13 days after the murder that he's saying this. So I don't know how much of this we can even believe, quite frankly. The fact that if someone's like schizophrenic or has split personalities and the therapist just hints that there is a problem, it's like, now you come back. It's like, what are you even saying? Like, I would be like, stay here while I get my friends in white coats, (laughs) you know, like try on this fancy jacket. Then there's this whole AWOL situation, Jill. Yes. Ellis told the AP, the Associated Press, this crazy story about why he went AWOL. And apparently he said that while he was in Japan with the service, he met a young lady and she had very strict parents. So they got married in secret. And when the Air Force issued Ellis new orders to go back to the States, she wouldn't come with him because she didn't want to leave her home and her family. So he traveled back to his new assignment in Georgia at Robbins Air Force Base. And he reports being heartbroken, stationed 7,000 miles away from his young wife. And so he decided he was going to do everything he could to get back to Japan and to his beloved. That's why he apparently left the base in Georgia and was hitchhiking across the country because his plan was to make money along the way and buy a plane ticket to Japan once he reached California. So the Shanghai Sentinel, an Asian news outlet, reached out to his apparent wife in Japan Mm. for comments. Oh, my gosh. What did she say? None of that is true. (laughs) (laughs) All lies. And then the Sentinel, like... So they were never married? Not according to her. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you mean my stalker? Like, okay. Wow. Wow. Wait, it gets better. Well, I shouldn't say it gets better. It gets more interesting. So the Sentinel has like, hey, Ellis, you know, uh, your quote unquote wife, she says like, no, and that you're just some scary guy. And he's like, well, how do you like that? I killed three people for her. And now this. Wow. 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 Yeah. Okay. Immediately after the murder of Ruby, Zola, and George, Ellis continued heading west in Ruby's stolen Ford. Mm-mm-mm. According to the El Paso Times from July 4th, 1955, that on June 26, four days after the murders, Ellis ended up in Texas near El Paso, and he went to a frosty service station where a young attendant, Edward Hylett, was working the full service pumps. Remember back in the day? I was just going to say... They need to bring back full service pumps. That was the best. They clean the windshield while you're in the car. Yeah. Anyway. And they check your tires. (laughs) So Edward was doing the whole full service thing at the service station. And Edward filled the tank. Ellis handed him money. 
And when Edward turned around to make change, Ellis attacked him from behind. Yeah, he wanted his money back. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to steal the money back. Now, Edward fought hard. And that surprised Ellis because Ellis was six feet tall and 190 pounds. Some of the news outlets described him as husky. And I didn't think that was necessary. Like, he's a murderer. But like, do we really have to body shame? During the struggle, Ellis would shoot Edward in the face at close range. My God. When the sheriff questioned Ellis about the altercation, mentioned that Edward, the attendant, was still alive and in fair condition, Ellis responded, you mean that guy didn't die? He is a monster. Like, just absolutely a monster. So he leaves the scene of that crime, shooting Edward in the face, and he crosses the U.S.-Mexican border. He's cruising in Ruby Sedan in the red light district of Nogales, Mexico. I should mention, I didn't mention this before, after the police got to the house of Ruby's and her family's murder, they put a bulletin out, be on the lookout. So people knew about these murders all over the United States to look for this car. And they had the description of who Ruby was last seen with from the diner that Ruby took Ellis to. So they had a description of the guy and the description of Ruby's missing car. So now fast forward, here we are. Ellis is driving around the red light district of Nogales, Mexico, which, to be honest, I think I've been there before. And he goes into a car dealership. And he's trying to sell Ruby's red and cream 1953 Ford sedan. But the dealer recognized the car and he recognized the description of Ellis. And so he called in the lead and stalled. On July 2nd of 1955, the Mexican authorities arrested him as an unwanted alien and handed him over to the Arizona authorities. Mm-mm-mm. He was arrested with Ruby's 1953 car that still had her license plate. What happened then? So they got him. So they questioned him. Okay, what happened? Well, they were like, Who, whose car is this? What did he say? <laughs> said, oh, it's my dad's car. He lives in Arkansas. And mm. they were like, well, what? Where do you live? What's your current address? And he said he lived at 22 Texas Street in Houston. Apparently, there's no such address. There is no <laughs> Texas Street. But it was a good, good guess. That was, yeah, that was a really good guess. I wouldn't know that that didn't exist. It wasn't a bad guess. Still, mm-hmm. he's lying through his teeth and telling stupid lies. Mm-hmm. Another, They asked him, did you target and kill that poor family from Dickinson, Texas? And he said he'd never been to Dickinson, Texas. Which is, of course, where the murders occurred. You know, the thing is, and the reason why this is so telling is that obviously he knows that he's wrong. Like, he knows enough to lie, right? He knows enough to lie. And I'll tell you, absolutely, this guy's crazy. But when we say, is he crazy? We mean in a legal term. Does he know the difference between right and wrong? And by him lying shows to me that he knows the difference between right and wrong. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but I do watch Judge Judy. So then what happens? They're, now they have to take Ellis and they have to extradite him back to Texas. And while he's in custody with the Texas Rangers, he apparently starts spilling his guts. So he confessed. Oh, yeah. He was singing like a canary, that one was. It was reported in the El Paso Times on July 4th, 1955, that he wanted to get everything off his chest. So as he was spending like 13 hours in the Texas Ranger custody, he reconstructed the events that led to the slaying of poor Ruby, Zola, and George. 
Alice related that when he was picked up by Ruby, he said that he tried to carjack her. He held up the 22 caliber gun that he eventually killed her with. And he was like, hey, give me all your money. And she's like, I don't have money. And she tried to get out of the car. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to report you. I'm going to turn you over to the air police. And so she's all freaked out because he pulled the gun out at her. But then all of a sudden, Ellis said, then she just calmed down. She chilled out. And, you know, she changed. She offered money. She's like, you know what? I do have money. I lied. Sorry. Here it is. Do you want it? Do you want to drive my car? And when they arrived in Dickinson, Ruby's hometown, she's like, I'm going to take you to get something to eat. We're going to go. We're going to get you beer. And then I'm going to take you home and you're going to spend the night at my house. Okay. Okay. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. It doesn't make any it, sense. It makes no sense that Ruby would suddenly be friendly and offer to take to her home where her son and her mother are a person who had tried to shoot her and carjack her and rob her. This makes mm. no sense. I it almost makes- want to like edit the whole thing out because it, I think it has no bearing on the story and it makes no sense. I disagree. It does have bearing on the story and I'll tell why? you why. Because I feel like he's saying that it's Ruby's fault that she was killed. He's victim shamed here and again because she knew he was dangerous and yes. she took me home anyway yes and I think that again doesn't show that that to me supports the fact that he's sane if he knows that this is wrong right this doesn't make he, any sense it really upsets me that he would make Ruby out to be the kind of woman who would take someone who she deemed dangerous home to her family and put them in danger that really upsets me Mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. But that's why we do what we do. Mm. And that's why this story is so important to give that voice out. No, she did not. He lied to her. I'm not even sure if she knew he was AWOL, to be honest with you. But she would not. She would rather die herself than put Zola and George in danger. She would never, never have taken home someone who she thought was dangerous. Never. But the it's good true. news is, during that conversation, he did confess. He confessed to the shooting of Ruby, Zola, and George. And he even confessed to shooting Edward, the gas station attendant. Mm, 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 mm. So obviously he was charged, right? What was he charged with? He was charged with the triple murder of Ruby, Zola and George and the robbery at the El Paso Frosty Station. So you can probably guess what his defense was. What was his defense, Jen? He pled not guilty because of insanity. Not surprisingly. The Texas Ranger, who had spent about 12 and a half hours with Ellis, said that he noticed nothing abnormal at all about him. And when asked if the Texas Ranger had any opinion about his sanity or insanity, the Texas Ranger replied, I have, sir. Ellis acted like a normal person. I believe that at this time and at the time of the shooting, he knew the difference between right and wrong. And he knew the nature and the consequences of his acts. And that, of course, is the definition of whether or not you're criminally insane. Well, what did the three top psychiatrists of the University of Texas Medical Center think, Jill? Who cares? They're wrong. <laughs> what did they say? They told the jury that Ellis was insane at the time of the shooting and is insane at the present time and does not know the difference between right and wrong. And they said that Ellis is a paranoid schizophrenic. The three expressed the opinion that he should be confined into a maximum security mental hospital for the rest of his life. So who did the jury believe? 
Well, according to my research, the jury agreed with the three psychiatrists and found that Ellis was insane and should be confined to a maximum security hospital for the duration of his life. And so he was admitted to the Rusk State Hospital. I thought Texas, like, they're really tough on crime. Like gung-ho death penalty. Yeah. So I'm a little I'm a little confused by that. Also, schizophrenia, I don't know the details about being schizophrenic, but I do know that schizophrenia does not equal murder. That's true. So I'm a little unclear about that, but I'm glad that he is he's locked away, right? Right. I think he should be in a prison. But hey, he's locked away. Tell me about his imprisonment. Well, I wouldn't even call it imprisonment. Mm, good point. I would call it his stay in a mental facility. few years later, the doctors at the hospital report that Ellis Lawton is withdrawn, he's depressed, and his condition is worsening. They also are highly medicating him, by the way. Oh, okay. Good to know. Over the years, a new hospital administration takes over, and Ellis's sanity is once again questioned. The new administration petitioned Judge Markle, who was the same judge who presided over Lawton's original trial, to consider his sanity. And in 1971, there's a second sanity hearing regarding Ellis's mental health, and he was again deemed insane and continued his stint at the state hospital. Okay. However, two years later then, Judge Markle agrees to allow Ellis to be transferred to a different hospital, a VA hospital, a veterans hospital in Arkansas to be nearer to his family. Remember, his father's family is from Arkansas and he spent much of his life there. Mm -hmm. Well, a month, one month after Ellis Lawton was transferred to the VA hospital in Arkansas, he walked out a free man. Okay, stop. A free man. Say that again. 1971, a month after his transfer to the Arkansas Veterans Hospital, he was released. Holy God. He walked out. Freaking walked out. He's he's freaking free. And we have no details surrounding that. That much is true, right? We have no details. That much is true. Someone really dropped the ball on this. So, Jill... What about that judge? What about Judge Markle? Did he have any response? Did he find out about this? Oh, my God. No. No one in Galveston found out about this for like a (gasps) year, a year or two. And then when the judge found out, he was like, what the actual F people? We need to get this guy back in custody. So he started putting together like an order to to get Ellis back. But nothing ever happened. It's unclear what happened. But like, no, he Ellis lived out the rest of his life. On a tree-lined street near a park, he lived to the ripe old age of like 83 and passed away in 2013 of natural causes. And there's an obit online for Ellis Sonny Euclid Lawton, 83, of Hot Springs, died Friday, January 25th, 2013. He was a Methodist. He was a Korean War Air Force veteran. He was the graduate of Altus High School in Altus. He attended Arkansas Tech University. He spent his life seeking to further his knowledge of a variety of subjects. He was an avid reader. He loved music and movies, blah, 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 blah. Wow. He was, I don't know, a murderer, a monster, a manipulator, a liar, 
Okay, so we are outraged and disgusted. So many reasons. So, you know, the judge, I Markle. really question. Judge yes, Markle. I am really disappointed with him. For not taking action and making sure something happened as a result of this? Yeah. So who are our voiceless? Let's just transition right to that. Oh, my gosh. Well, for sure, Ruby, George, and Zola are voiceless. For sure. They, they were murdered in cold blood. And poor Ruby in particular, because of the way he portrayed her as being really an idiot. And she wasn't an idiot. She wasn't an idiot at all. She would not have taken him home if he had tried to carjack her first at gunpoint. She would never put her family in danger. Never. Screw this guy. Another thing is that the fact that they did not round him up and get him back, back to Rusk, that there's just wrong. Anyway... Let's go into our hits because, Jen, this was trippy. This is trippy. And we're again, guys, we're still in South Carolina. We are not in Dickinson, Texas. So how can we say that this is our story? Break it down, Jen. We had that experience in Blythewood at the Historical Society. Me having the vision of the man with his pants down, that whole scene from Unforgiven where the guy in the outhouse is completely caught unawares, undressed, unprepared for a gunfight and just murdered in cold blood. A hundred percent. When I was doing the research and I read about this, Zola that that hit mm-hmm. Zola in bed, like undressed, probably in a nightgown, mm-hmm. totally unprepared for the monster that just came through that exactly. doorway. The, then the whole time warp situation with the women at the Historical Society insisting that it was Monday. I know it's so weird. It's so bizarre. Guiding us down the street to Ridgeway. And then our experience in Ridgeway, in the antique shop, on the street, and in the restaurant the whole time feeling like we were just on the other side of a scene Mm -hmm. from the 1950s. All of our references were leading us to the 1950s. Our visions, the music, everything. So we were being drawn to the family rough businesses, that weird warehouse, that weird, the store that I was like, these businesses are, are just reverberating and like pulsating with spirit. That was the rough original store and the general store. And then we went to the rough chapel, which again was like, mm, mm, vibrating. Haunted. You yes. need to be, oh my God, it's crazy. This is the weird part. So I knew, based on our hits, this story was about murder, a shooting, the 1950s, and the Ruff family, right? Right. None of that was coming up in Ridgeway. But one of the surnames, the family surnames from the Ruff family, did give me a hit. And that was Ellis's last name. Lawhon. Yes. Like we know that David Ruff, the original first merchant of Ridgeway, we know that he didn't have any kids, but his sister Nancy did. And his sister Nancy is buried at the chapel where we were at. Yes, she is, <laughs> mister. And Nancy lived in Blythewood. Oh. Then moved, yes, with her brother Daniel, and then moved away from Daniel and his family to spend 
more time with and to be near with her bachelor brother who lived in Ridgeway, right? So she went yes. from Blythewood to Ridgeway. Sounds like exactly what we did, Jennifer. That is exactly what we did. Also, she married a man in Ridgeway called Dr. Isaac Lawhon, <gasps> L-A-U-H-O-N, the same last name as Ellis, our villain in this story. And, and this is the crazy part, according to my research, her descendants, Nancy, Ruff, her descendants moved from the area some of them went to Arkansas. So it's likely that the Lawhans of Arkansas are related to the Ruth family in Ridgeway, South Carolina. The murderer Ellis Lawton's family was from Arkansas as well. He was a direct descendant of Nancy Ruff. And Nancy is pissed, Ellis. Jill, I think that Nancy Ruff Lawhan led us to Ridgeway and then somehow brought us to another place and time to Texas in the 1950s to lead us to the voiceless, who were, of course, the victims who were murdered by her own descendant, Ellis Lawton. She was incredibly disappointed. And we talk a lot about how our actions have a ripple effect, right? right? On different episodes of our podcast, we talk about how we ourselves had healed our own family's generational trauma, right? We're trying. We're trying. We're trying, but we we brought more peace to like our grandfather and and to our our family from West Virginia. Right. Yeah, that's true. So that same ability to heal also gives us that same ability to cause trauma, Mm. not just for future generations and the present, but also for our ancestors, the folks that we are here because of. You know, that makes me think about our recent Portals episode, that bonus episode we did on Patreon, because we really delve into dimensions. And there are many theories that discuss that different dimensions are occurring right now, and the past, the present, and the future are all happening right now. And your actions create a ripple effect in all directions. So if you are interested in more discussion about that, check out our Patreon at tiers three and four. You get not only the detours episodes, but also the longer bonuses once a month. Well said, Jen. Thank you. And as always, you guys know where to find us at our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Insta at Common Mystics Podcast. But if you happen to be on Apple, please leave us a positive review so other people can find us. You guys, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening and good night. Good night.